That Triathlon Show, episode 71. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we'll go right down the rabbit hole of explaining what all these different threshold terms that you see and hear thrown around really mean. So what we'll do in this episode is to explain what terms like aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold, lactate threshold, functional threshold, plus maybe some other related terms like onset of blood lactate accumulation, fat max zone, etc. mean. And I'll discuss what it means for you and your training and racing, because at the end of the day, you want to get faster and it makes no sense knowing these different concepts, but not knowing how they are important for your training and racing and how you apply them. So we'll cover that as well as usual to make this actionable and applicable to you. So I'll be back after this main segment also to give you a quick snapshot from a very interesting study that I just came across on the risk of developing diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance for endurance athletes compared with a normal control population and other types of uh, athletes that are not endurance athletes. So it's really fascinating. But first, let's start talking thresholds. So let's start this discussion with a quick caveat i will simplify this discussion quite a bit to make sure that everybody can understand it in layman's terms so bear with that if you are an exercise scientist listening to this also there are several slightly different nuances in how to define and use the different terms that we will discover and some different concepts so In this episode, let's not care too much about the slight differences, but focus on the important things like understanding the actual concepts and how to use it in your training and racing. Even though I want you to understand what happens physiologically, we don't want to get bogged down with what happens exactly on a molecular level when this or that threshold is called this or that, etc. So that's what I mean by not really caring too much about the different small nuances, but getting the big picture understanding right of these thresholds. All right, so to measure your thresholds, there are basically two ways that you can do it. You can do a blood lactate test where you do a test in a lab where they draw blood lactate samples, or you can measure your respiratory rate, the essentially the amount of carbon dioxide produced compared to the rate of oxygen inhaled. So that is a respiratory exchange ratio, and you use a spiroergometry system to do that. So in the former case, you'll be running or biking in a lab, and at constant intervals, you will have an increase in intensity usually. So it's a ramp test and a researcher or lab assistant will draw a blood sample from you and you will be able to, or the lab assistant will be able to measure the blood lactate in that sample. And in the latter case, you will do the same, but you will be running with a a breathing, you'll be breathing through a valve or a mask of sorts so that you can always be, or your rate of CO2 production and oxygen inhalation can be measured. So a lot of the different naming conventions are 
actually related to these two different ways of uh, of measuring thresholds but there are also some historical artifacts about when people first started started finding these thresholds so there are many reasons for why we have different names for seemingly very similar or identical concepts and physiological phenomena so for example for most intents and purposes the aerobic threshold measured in a blood lactate test is the same as the ventilatory threshold one measured in uh, an RER respiratory exchange ratio test so and the lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold is the same as ventilatory threshold two and this second threshold is also roughly the same as the functional threshold that you probably heard of like your functional threshold power that you can measure by doing a 20 minute all out effort and you don't need a lab for that so so that's kind of the how these different terms relate to each other so let me repeat that again to make sure it's clear you have ventilatory threshold one which is the aerobic threshold and the ventilatory threshold two which is equal to the anaerobic threshold or the functional threshold then there are some other terms that you may have seen like onset of blood lactate accumulation or obla and maximum lactate steady state and these are both essentially the same as the anaerobic threshold once again Uh, so yes there are differences some may say that the obla is exactly four millimoles per liter of blood lactate concentration and not necessarily the same as what you would determine to be your anaerobic threshold in a blood lactate test but these are tiny tiny differences that we don't need to bother ourselves with so so if you see the terms obla or MLSS, maximum lactate steady state, you can assume that they're pretty much the same as the anaerobic threshold. And I linked a really good article on lactate.com about the history of these naming conventions and how people started finding thresholds and, and how these conventions came to be, if you're interested in learning more about the background. But uh, it also has very useful information about the physiology, of course, so, so that's, that will be linked up in the show notes. But uh, one thing to keep in mind here is that you will see a lot of confusion if you read on forums, blogs, and even magazine articles. So some people will talk about just the threshold or call the aerobic threshold the lactate threshold, which is incorrect, uh, generally speaking, as we saw, because the lactate threshold is typically defined as being the same as the anaerobic threshold and not the aerobic threshold. So... Just try to make sure that you understand what the two types of thresholds we have are, and then it will be easier for you to deduce which threshold people are talking about from the context of of that discussion. So for the rest of this episode, I'll primarily stick to the terms aerobic and anaerobic threshold. Those are just the terms that I prefer to use when talking about the different thresholds. And one more thing, uh, a term that I want to define is uh, fat max. This is the range of exercise intensity where your fat oxidation is at its highest. It's not a super low intensity, but not too high intensity either. And recent research that I'll link to as well has shown that fat max correlates very, very well with the aerobic threshold. So in the study that I'll link to, which is from this year, I believe, if I remember correctly, fat max was at 47.5% of VO2 max. That was the center of the fat max zone. And the aerobic threshold was at 46. So 47.5% of VO2 max versus 46%. So as you can see, very, very close. 
All right, that's uh, about the names. Just a little bit to give you some background. I hope that wasn't too confusing. And this next bit is maybe a bit more confusing, but it is important to start understanding the threshold. It is about the energy systems that we use when we exercise to produce energy that will make our muscles contract. And that is what brings us forward on the swim, bike and run. So the muscle cells ultimately use ATP for fuel, which is a molecule. And so all energy systems or pathways need to produce ATP as an end product for it to produce energy at all. The amount of ATP stored in the muscles is enough for just a few seconds worth of work, maybe five seconds or less. So for anything longer than that, we need to use one of three main energy systems that our bodies use to create ATP. The first is uh, the ATP PC system, which uses creatine phosphate to produce uh, additional ATP. And this is an anaerobic system. It does not require oxygen to turn a creatine phosphate into ATP. And it's the dominant energy system for events like the 100 meter dash, for example. So when the energy requirements are around 10 seconds in duration or less. And it uh, contributes when for events lasting up to maybe 30 or 45 seconds. So very short, short energy system. Then the next energy system is glycolysis, which breaks glucose into ATP through an intermediate product called pyruvate or molecule probably i should say and pyruvate is also the start of the final energy system but let's start with actually let's uh yeah let's explain it now so so pyruvate can be either used to create energy anaerobically or be used by the mitochondria in the cell cells to create energy aerobically and in the glycolysis case pyruvate is used anaerobically to create energy so it's converted to lactic acid and then broken down into lactate and hydrogen and uh, ATP is formed in that process. The hydrogen ions are the byproducts that if not cleared will start to lower your blood pH and this is called acidosis and that is why you start to feel the burn when, when you start to accumulate uh, that hydrogen and your blood pH start to, to lower through the acidosis. So this is also the onset of declining performance when, when you accumulate these byproducts in, in your blood. And the glycolysis energy system, as I said, it's anaerobic. It does not require oxygen to convert the pyruvate into ATP. So this energy system is dominant between 30 seconds to 2 minutes and contributes significantly in events up to 10 minutes. And But there's always... As I, as I will say later, there's always some contribution from this energy system in triathlon as well, even though even in long distance triathlon. So finally, the third energy system is the aerobic energy system, and it's called aerobic oxidation, or in fancy terms, uh, oxidative phosphorylation. And uh, it's as I said, it uses oxygen, or as the name implies, it uses oxygen to convert the pyruvate to rather than being converted to lactate it is shuttled into the mitochondria of the cells and in the presence of oxygen in the mitochondria it is aerobically converted to ATP. So to compare these systems one glucose molecule can produce two ATP molecules in glycolysis anaerobically 
but it can produce 32 ATP molecules in aerobic oxidation. But this requires sufficient oxygen available to convert the pyruvate aerobically in the mitochondria. Otherwise, the pyruvate will go into the anaerobic energy system. So there are pros and cons of both. The, uh, the aerobic oxidation is slower than glycolysis, but it is the dominant energy system in events lasting longer than five minutes, so very, very dominant in triathlon. But there is, as I said, always more than one energy system or more than one energy system can be used and is used at the same time in exercise and in racing. But the proportions of contributions of different energy systems vary based on the relative exercise intensity and duration, and that is relative to your physiology. So how intense it is for you and how long it is for you. So for example, let's say that you go out on a group ride and you're sitting in with a pack you're not really exerting yourself too much. Your aerobic system does the vast majority of the work, although there is a small contribution from anaerobic energy systems, in particular glycolysis. But then you get to a hill and somebody decides to make an attack. So suddenly, and you're trying to stick with it. So suddenly you're riding at a very hard intensity, maybe for up to several minutes. But whatever the case may be, now your anaerobic system glycolysis becomes a much larger contributor of energy uh, you're using that for the duration of the attack unless it's a like 20 minute or 30 minute or well longer than 10 minutes let's say climb and in those first seconds especially transitioning to the attack you may have been pushing many many hundreds of watts closer to thousands of watts if you're like at the high end so you probably had quite a bit of contribu- contribution even from that 100-meter dash energy system, the ATP-CP system. So that's it for energy system. Now let's move on to talk about the thresholds and how they relate to this energy system. So what we want to answer here is the question, what are the aerobic and anaerobic thresholds? And we'll tackle this from the perspective of a lactate test. So if you measure your thresholds using blood lactate samples, blood blood lactate testing, you will get a chart that plots your blood lactate concentration against the intensity in power or speed. I'll have links in the show notes to some examples on thattriathlonshow.com. And uh, so what you'll do is, let's say you're running on a treadmill, you'll start at a very low intensity and maybe run for three minutes and then you will increase the speed slightly. And, uh, And every time you increase the speed, a new lactate sample is drawn. The, the researcher picks some blood from you and you, they can analyze that and measure the lactate concentration in your blood for each intensity point. So you can have 8 kilometers an hour, 8.5, 9, 9.5, and so on. And when you conduct a lactate test from a sufficiently low level of intensity, which you should, lactate will remain at a relatively low baseline as like similar to actually at rest or even it might lower from the resting value when you just exercise at a very low intensity but uh, so through increasing work intensities it will still remain at the baseline until a certain point when it begins to rise and this is generally defined as the aerobic threshold so it can be seen as a point when the contribution from your anaerobic energy system becomes larger It doesn't mean that it becomes dominant, but before this, the aerobic system produces the vast majority of energy, but this is a point when a shift in energy system contribution starts to occur. 
And I'll link to an article in the show notes that uh, Alan Cousins uh, wrote on this topic, which is really good. So, so you can check that out as well to learn more. The anaerobic threshold, on the other hand, indicates the point of exercise in which lactate dissipation and clearance can no longer match the rate of accumulation. So, so this is where you really start to see an exponential increase and an exponential increase in lactate on, on that plot for lactate versus intensity. And any intensi- increasing intensity beyond this point means that any further contribution of energy comes from the anaerobic energy system. Your, your aerobic energy contribution is, is maxed out. And that is uh, actually taken directly from Ross Tucker, who wrote uh, the chapter of, uh, on physiology in triathlon science, or at least on the anaerobic threshold. So, so that is uh, the reference for, for that definition. And that is, I checked many different ones and just chosen a couple of good ones that I think are easy to understand and Ross Tucker's and then a couple by Alan Cousins that I kind of reworded but still used as the basis. That's where I have what I have based these definitions that I just talked about on. So on the lactate curve, you'll see this as the point when the actual curve breaks away from a straight line draw from the aerobic threshold points and along the curve. This is very hard to explain. So I think that maybe 0.5% of you will understand this. I definitely wouldn't understand this if somebody explained it to me on a podcast. So no worries, but I'll draw a picture of it and explain it in the show notes. And uh, to compare this to an FTP test, for example, uh, you can uh, you can measure your anaerobic threshold by doing a 20-minute all-out test and you take 95% of the intensity that you hold for that test. And that is generally a reasonable approximation for your what you could hold in a race of an hour in duration so that is that is what your functional threshold is and that corresponds reasonably well again to your anaerobic threshold but with the caveat there is quite big individual variance here as well and in an in a respiratory exchange ratio test it's the anaerobic threshold is the point when co2 produced exceeds oxygen used so, so that's how that is defined. How then do these thresholds affect your training and racing? This is the most important question. And if you don't remember anything about what I've discussed so far, no, no worries. You don't necessarily need to do that. But just be aware of what the important points are and takeaways are for your training and racing. And these are as follows. So the aerobic thres- threshold is uh, training around that is usually meant to improve your capacity to produce a steady output over a longer duration of time. And with longer, well, let's say that the aerobic threshold is an intensity that you can use in a marathon, for example, if you're you're a relatively well-trained, well-trained athlete. So that's an example. But for a well-trained triathlete, even an Ironman can be raised at close to the aerobic threshold. So so a long duration of time is somewhat arbitrary, but definitely longer than, than an hour. And this is a, such an important threshold in long distance racing, especially because as a rule of thumb for most age groupers, you don't want to go above your aerobic threshold because this will quickly start to use up your glycogen stores. Remember that when you create ATP aerobically, you get 32 ATP molecules per glucose molecule used. But when this switches to anaerobic energy production or you get a bigger contribution of anaerobic energy production after or beyond the aerobic threshold, 
you now get only two ATP molecules per glucose molecule from that anaerobic contribution. So that's a massive difference. And since your glycogen stores are limited, which can be turned into glucose, you might actually become glycogen depleted if you get too much of your energy from that anaerobic energy system, even if you're not actually accumulating lactate or anything like that. So if you stay around the aerobic threshold, you also use a maximum amount of fat as fuel. So this is again something that's uh, that stores your uh, or spares you from depleting your glycogen stores and they won't be as much of a limiter as they otherwise might again referencing the above about the aerobic threshold being very well correlated with the fat max zone so to conclude this especially if you focus on half or full distance triathlons what you want to do is to maximize your speed and power output at your aerobic threshold and you can do this in two ways this is again something that uh, Alan Cousins explains very well on his blog. You can push the aerobic threshold with high volume of work at or slightly below the aerobic threshold, or you can drag it by elevating your VO2 max as high as possible and hoping that the the points below the VO2 max will fall into line. And my comment to this is, and Alan would agree that this met- method may work, but for a limited time only, maybe 8 to 12 weeks, and then you'll start to plateau. So a larger amount of training volume at or slightly below the aerobic threshold is the best long-term approach. And there really is no substitute to years and years of consistent training when it comes to developing your aerobic threshold. On the other hand, there is some evidence to say that staying too far below the aerobic threshold won't develop it at all. There are, of course, other benefits of these even easier workouts for recovery and so on, but for developing the aerobic threshold, not so much. So you don't want to... This is where we start talking about junk miles. And when you, If you want to develop your aerobic threshold and you go way too easy, that's, uh, that's a good start place to start talking about junk miles. And in terms of racing, for a well-trained triathlete, as I said, the aerobic threshold is a decent estimate for Ironman race pace. But more novice triathletes should make sure to have some margin for error and stay well below that. The anaerobic threshold, on the other hand, is important both for long and short course athletes. Sprint and Olympic distance athletes will race at, clo- at or close to or even above the anaerobic threshold and they therefore want to maximize their speed or power at this anaerobic threshold rather than the aerobic threshold. Although I should say that, especially at the Olympic distance, beginners will still be around the aerobic threshold and not the anaerobic threshold at this distance. Anyway, knowing your anaerobic threshold is very useful information in training and racing as it sets an upper cap on the intensity level at which you accumulate a significant amount of anaerobic work and in training if you can so i should restate that you if you go beyond that you probably won't be able to accumulate a lot of work at a high intensity an intensity close to the threshold but in training what you want to do is is maximize the work accumulation around the physiological intensity zone that you want to develop so that has knock-on effect if you can accumulate a lot of work on the training adaptations that you get and getting fitter, simply. So rather than staying slightly above the anaerobic threshold and making it through maybe three reps of your threshold interval workout, 
if you're saying just slightly below it and do five reps you've done really really well and probably you have uh, just got yourself some really good training adaptations through that so that is uh, an example of how useful it can be to know your anaerobic threshold how to develop the anaerobic threshold i've actually just finished reading a review on how to best train the anaerobic threshold vo2 max and economy that was for running specifically but uh, i think this applies to triathlon as well and the fact is that there really isn't a whole lot of conclusive evidence on what kind of training is best or what kind is better than any other anecdotally of course doing work around the anaerobic threshold either continuously or as intervals seems to work and so that is what i would recommend but uh, there may be yeah we we don't really know vo2 max workouts may some research suggested that that is good as well we just don't know conclusively yet from from research just anecdotally so again the current recommendation would probably be to do work around the anaerobic threshold but making sure that you maximize your work accumulation to develop that anaerobic threshold but the reason that the anaerobic threshold is also important for long course athletes is because at the end of the day your aerobic threshold can only get so close to your anaerobic threshold so when you approach this point and your aerobic threshold converges towards your anaerobic threshold your only way to improve further is to raise your anaerobic threshold and then you have room to raise your aerobic threshold again but keep in mind that for you as a long course athlete the aerobic threshold is your primary limiter and your anaerobic threshold is only the secondary limiter when just putting these two against each other and a quick word on field tests so although the ftp tests and other field tests like 20 minute run tests that i for example describe in episodes 27 for swimming 29 for cycling and 30 for running they're really good but there is a fair bit of individual difference going on there and for most athletes their, their anaerobic threshold may be very close to their ftp but then there are athletes on both sides of the bell curve for whom there is a mismatch sorry and prescribing training zones based on those field tests may lead to the purpose of these training zones being lost and another issue with field tests is that yes you may be able to use that to approximate your anaerobic threshold uh, sorry uh, you may be use that to approximate your yeah your anaerobic threshold quite accurately but um, can you actually estimate your aerobic threshold that's the question there are percentage estimates for the aerobic thresholds compared to your anaerobic threshold but as i said for very well-trained athletes they may have pushed their aerobic threshold towards their anaerobic threshold and people that haven't built a strong aerobic base the aerobic threshold may be far away from the anaerobic threshold so there is a big big gap there between people in where the aerobic threshold is in relative to their anaerobic threshold so that's where a lactate test or a respiratory test will show you both of those threshold it's not always super clear i should say but it's at least clearer and you get an id and you get a second opinion so this is most of the points that i wanted to make i think it's all of the points actually but as i said i'll link to some good additional information in the show notes that you can read to get some more information but for now i think this is enough on the thresholds I'm really keen on getting some feedback on this episode and feedback especially on if you want a follow-up on it perhaps as an interview with a with an expert on the topic on maybe on lab testing and so on that's something that i've been thinking of and if you do if you find this interesting and want more information 
please send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and let me know. And that's Michael with a K. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, here's an interesting study that I just came across. It's from 2014 from the University of Helsinki. And it's epidemiological evidence on the risk and the prevalence of diabetes and impaired glucose control in athletes and different types of athletes compared with uh, controls. So this study published data on nearly 400 former elite athletes who represented Finland in major international competitions between 1920 and 1965. They had three categories of athletes, endurance sports, power sports, this includes boxing and weightlifting, for example, and mixed sports. This includes team sports like hockey and basketball. And compared with non-athlete controls, in on average, the former athletes, all groups, were 42% less likely to have impaired glucose tolerance and 31% less likely to have diabetes. So that's a great reduction, as you, I'm sure you understand. But when you look specifically into the different categories, you see that the former endurance athletes had the lowest risk with a 47% reduction in diabetes prevalence compared to the controls. And in the power sports, this number was 34%, and in the mixed sports, 25%. So endurance sports is really good for for reducing the risk of uh, developing diabetes. And I think that's uh, a very nice study and uh, interesting, and uh, I think we should all be happy to be endurance athletes. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. You can contact me and send me questions on michael at scientifictriathlon.com or tweet me on Twitter, where my handle is at scitriat. The next episode, which will be released on Thursday as usual, will be on WKO4, which is a powerful analytical software for especially cycling, but also running and swimming, and especially useful for running with power meters. And uh, this is an interview with uh, uh, Tim Kosick from WKO4. So look forward to that, especially for those of you that are interested in a bit of tech. Finally, uh, as I'm settling in in Portugal, as I mentioned on a couple of previous podcasts, this means now that I have the time to be a full-time coach and I'm looking to coach 15 athletes in total. I currently got 12 athletes signed up that uh, they have already started or some of them are waiting to get started very soon. So if you are interested in being coached by me, there are three slots left. And uh, so send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K and we can get on Skype or just discuss on email whether it's a good fit for you or not. I look forward to chatting with you if you're interested in, in coaching. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.